It's the Meg John and Justin show. <laughs> <laughs> well, we talked about Changing making a game yeah, show, yeah, right? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and MJ's been calling it a show and a program. I know, you always get more when I do that. <laughs> I mean, it's still a podcast. Yes. Yeah, it is. Uh, welcome. Uh, as you may have gathered, we uh, are thrilled to have back a special guest, friend of the podcast, um, Dr. Alex Ian Taffy. Oh, that makes me sound so prestigious. Yes. <laughs> you are prestigious as hell, and you have your own pod- podcast now. So now we're podcasting buddies. Well, that's I true. do. We are podcasting buddies. You inspired me. Uh, his amazing uh, Gender Stories podcast, um, which how many episodes do you have now? There are five episodes out, yeah. and there I'm releasing one episode every month. Yeah. So there are already quite a few in the work, including one with Mac John, mm-hmm. and hopefully one with you, yes. Justin, and <laughs> one with Dave Pickering, and one with my friend Pat Schmatz, who's an amazing uh, writer. So. You know, I'm pretty much planned until the end of the year. There's going to be one with my kid who's quite keen to be interviewed <gasps> oh, cool. for oh my, God, for my podcast. Awesome. And she yeah. wants the episode to be released for her birthday month. So, yeah, there's one one every month. And there are five already out and one that's going to come out on July 1st. That's really great. And this idea of gender stories was something I got from your excellent book. Plug your book now. Mm-hmm. Oh. How to understand your gender? A practical guide for exploring who you are. The longest title in the world. <laughs> for... Wait, I'm sure yeah. in the Joy Sex Hour, and if you want to, a practical and inclusive guide might be up there. Ooh. Yeah, That's yeah. Up there. Why do publishers should... want such long titles these days? Oh, we really yeah. need to count like our titles, like characters and words, and yeah. make it a competition next yeah. time. Yeah, see who wins. <laughs> <laughs> so this idea of gender stories is that we all, we I guess we all have our own unique biography around our gender and that's the thing I'm really enjoying about the the podcast so far is that each one is very different but they Mm -hmm. all relate in in very interesting what in very interesting ways to how people relate to their gender and how people do their gender absolutely and that's what I really was excited about because what I found is um uh, as I talk to more and more people about gender and I was also thinking the other day why am I talking to people about gender so much is it just because I'm like trans non-binary myself and then I thought oh hang on a minute I have a whole PhD in gender studies or what used to be called women's studies actually because I am that old mm-hmm. and I realized I've been fascinated by this idea of gender my whole life no matter what my identity was and what I'm finding is whenever I talk about gender whether it's a training whether it's in therapy whether it's somebody who's read the book now or whether it's somebody on the train and we talk about what I do uh, or who I am is that everybody has got this has got a lot of stories that do relate to gender whether it's things growing up or things that could or could not do because of cultural social expectations whether it's um, their gender fitting in or not fitting in in some ways and so yeah the whole idea of the podcast was that everybody has a relationship with gender mm-hmm. um, and everybody is engaged in all this myriad of ways in the world and yet gender comes into it. So, you know, my episode two of the podcast is an interview with Eric Peregrine, for example, who's a choir conductor. And so we talk about voice. Mm. Um, you know, episodes three and four are with my friend Arike Aguilar, who's an amazing community organizer. And we talk about organizing at the intersection of race and gender because she does a lot of work with the women of color. And we talk about political healers. And then episode five is um, my amazing friend Erica Anna, who's a business owner and video maker um, and also a survivor. So we talk about all 
all of those kind of issues um, yeah. with their, you know, episode six. It is um, uh, my friend Pat, uh, who's also non-binary and who's a writer, and we talk about writing and gender. So every every person I'm interviewing has a different gender identity mm. and a different intersection as well. Yeah. And that's different things in the world. And that's yeah. kind of what I love about it. Anyway, mm. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, I'm it's gonna... really great. Rightly so. <laughs> um, awesome. uh, big fan. So uh, we uh, often retweet it, but also we'll be obviously putting a link to this in the uh, podcast notes and things. And we're delighted to have you back for the second uh, second time we've had uh, yes the second time we must we've have... only had two guests haven't we we've had them back twice <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, wow. we just got our mates really <laughs> I mean that's kind of what I'm doing with mine I realise yeah. I know so many amazing people yeah. why not like it's let the world know about them too right yeah. Um, but yeah like it's about a year since we did the first one yeah. Um, and that was just after our book came out, I think. And this time it's just on the back of us spending a week writing our second book together, Alex. That's right. Life isn't binary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you want to say something about that, Mick John? Um <laughs> Well, like, neither of us have any brain left because we spent the last week writing 58,000... Oh, great. What, 58,000 it- words, 500 and... <laughs> 58,513 words in five days. Do not try this at home, <laughs> listeners. Yeah, How did you do that? <laughs> I mean, I don't know how we did it. It's like a Wonder Twins power activate, somebody said on Instagram. And I I really believe it's true. It's like we go into this bubble. It's like this monastic life. Yeah. And we enter the stream of conversations we've had over the past 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. We, We go to bed really early and we're kind of a little bit in our own space and we have this rhythm and... Yeah. And Mac John cooks delicious food, and I like put things in the dishwasher at the Airbnb usually, or do the dishes. And yeah, we, we it just works, doesn't it? We do yoga every oh, morning. Oh, we do yoga in yeah, the morning. Yeah. We stretch every morning, which is really good. Um, and often it's on really pe- like current topics. Like I yeah. felt like it was so weird this time. It was almost like the theme of every day. Like we were grappling mm-hmm. with emotional stuff, and we were writing about emotions. We were grappling with bodily stuff. We were yeah. writing about bodies. It was just mm-hmm. like there's some some magic to it. Um, but yeah, life isn't binary. So basically, we're exploring the concept of non-binary, which we know gets applied to sexuality, as in bisexuality, pansexuality. Mm-hmm. We know it gets applied to gender, as in non-binary gender. And we just thought, like, what would be like to start a book with those two topics, but then move on to relationships, emotions, bodies, and thinking, and think for each of those topics. Think, well, what's the implications of mm-hmm. being non-binary about it? And we came up with quite a lot, really. So much. Every every time I started writing something, I would say to Mac John this time, I have no idea what I'm going to say about this. I have nothing to say. And then like a thousand <laughs> words later, I yeah. apparently had a lot of feelings about the hashtag <laughs> me too. Or yeah. like a thousand words later, I had a lot to say actually about bodies and non-binary issues. Mm. Yeah. And I think it was, it is that magic of like, this is in us and it's bubbling up and just letting it flow. And I think as Isadora Duncan that said something about art, you know, like just be that channel and then let other people be critical about it and I find that really hard to do when I'm by myself but when we're together Mm -hmm. there's something magical that happens where I can just unleash the gate of writing and write like these are the most words I've written in the last two years yeah me too it's much easier it's so much more writing with both of you it's so much easier than writing alone Mm -hmm. Um, and you know you know the other person is brilliant so you can kind of big it up in a way that Mm -hmm. you can't when you write on your own you know it's just really hard to hold that confidence about yourself but I'm like whenever I write with one of you it's like well I know this is because I know their quality and they wouldn't let something go through if it wasn't quality. So See, that's how I feel about you. I yeah. was like, Mac yeah. John has got a body of work. If I say something really terrible, that would happen. <laughs> <laughs> 
So yeah. So we have had a few questions that we've kind of been storing up because we thought that they'd be really good for uh, Alex to help us out with. Yes. Right. Um, so. Um, where the, some of them are quite tough. Yeah, yeah <laughs> no of, pressure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We just we Thanks, saved up mates. all the tough questions all year, and now they're all going to come out. Yeah, and, so. and yeah, I thought we were friends. <laughs> <laughs> I know better now. <laughs> so we're not going to read out the questions verbatim because some of them are kind of long. Um, just a, a gentle reminder, dear listener, that if we do very much welcome your questions and love your questions, but if you could try to make them a little bit more concise that would be wonderful yeah um because we don't want to be identifying anybody Mm. accidentally but also we want to be keeping the content of our answers broad enough so that they aren't just answering an individual's problem but are something for people generally for people to think about so that's kind of where we're wanting to go with it really definitely um so what we saved up was a couple of questions relating to gender and queerness um a question relating to neurodiversity because we know you've got some expertise around that and a question around families because you're a family therapist so Mm, great uh, (laughs) no pressure at all i'll I'll see what i can do i don't know if i'm an expert on anything but we'll figure it out as we go along and your 25 minutes starts now Now. (laughs) where's the clock where's the music Um, so yeah the first is a kind of two part so both these questions were sort of part of the same question but let's start with the first part of it so somebody was concerned about that they've decided that the that that the identity as lesbian is the most comfortable one having identified as queer in the past they're Mm -hmm. now identifying as lesbian um but they're worried about they've been criticized even about being maybe a bad Mm. queer ally for identifying as lesbian because it's seen as binary um and also from excluding cis men from their dating pool um, and whether and they really wanted to know like is that okay is it queer enough to do that that kind of question what do you reckon Alex yeah well hmm not yes there are so many layers to that question right yeah I feel like there's maybe five or six questions in that one but um, my first reaction is that I can really relate because I remember when I first came out um, in my early 20s and I'm, I'm sliding close to 50 for the listeners who can't see me also I just look incredibly youthful if you follow yeah. me on social media but awesome. yes I am 47 um, so <laughs> trans superpowers yeah exactly trans superpowers so like 25 years ago <laughs> when, I, when I started coming out I kind of came out um, as bisexual initially mm-hmm. and um, there was an immediate backlash mm. um, I really felt it wasn't okay to identify as bisexual I came out in a a fairly provincial town, which will remain nameless um, in the UK. If you can see my CV, you can probably figure it out. But there you <laughs> oh, go. Where there was like one lesbian bar. Um, yeah. In fact, there was one gay bar and then the lesbian bar opened. So it was very exciting. And it was very clear that not only I was suspect because I was in English. So there were already all these prejudices about me being Italian and not blooded and not to be trusted because I was Medi- Southern Mediterranean, mm-hmm. you know, so a lot of like weird paradox of like both exoticizing my ethnicity, but at the same time, um, kind of being quite suspicious of it and suspicious of my queerness. And then on top of that, I was very femme presenting at the time because I really, I was like, I didn't know about anything about trans or non-binary issues 25 years ago. And I was like, fuck it, if this is how I'm born and I have to perform femininity, I'm going to do it well, 
Which makes complete sense now that I know I'm a trans, non-binary, beautiful unicorn princess, pagody person, um, <laughs> right? That I would be like, I'm going to have a sense of style about this if I have to like pretend to be a girl. Um, and that's kind of where I was at. And um, when I came out as bi, not only was I getting a lot of unwanted attention by cis men, but there was also a lot of judgment by lesbian mm. community about not being a real lesbian, mm. you know, just uh, not. So it kind of added another layer of why I couldn't be trusted. Mm. Uh-huh. So there was this intersection of my ethnicity, my gender expression and presentation, and my bisexual identity. The the combination made me extra, extra suspect, yeah. mm. right? And so I found it really hard to... I find anybody today and it felt really toxic and at the time I wasn't like let me take a critical lens on what's going on here in in this lesbian bar right I really internalized and I thought it was about me and so I started identifying as a lesbian mostly because mm-hmm. I really wasn't interested in dating cis men so I mm-hmm. guess that's the other piece where I relate um, to the person who asked the question I really didn't have a lot of interest I had a lot of trauma mm-hmm. actually that related to cis men so I didn't really want mm-hmm to have cis men in my life at the time. I was a lesbian separatist, basically, mm-hmm. for a chunk of time. And um, and I was brought up a second wave feminist. I didn't really know about trans issues. So here I was being a, a you know, second wave, teaching women's studies, lesbian separatist, mm-hmm. basically, in my early 20s, yeah. early to mid 20s. And um, and that w- there was comfort in there. Mm-hmm. There was a, a level of comfort and acceptance. and. And of course, what happened is that that started to crumble because the more um, I got into my own doctoral studies and really thinking critically about gender and disability, which was the focus of my studies at the time, the more I started to really uh, look at what was going on for me. I was also getting out of uh, previous abusive relationships and also abusive same-gender relationship because I think one of the things that it's slightly more talked about now but not as much is that abusive dynamic can happen regardless of people's gender identities. And so I was seeking some safety in some ways and kind of getting away Mm. from cis male sexuality and, and actually ended up being engaged in some other abusive dynamics in kind of um, what were at the time same gender relationships, um, and by women are particularly at risk of that. Actually, absolutely, the statistics. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's interesting because that's yeah. exactly like how it was used. There was mm-hmm. a lot of like you cannot be trusted, a lot of isolating. Yeah. Um, and then what was really painful was that the lesbian partner I had at the time I found out had been cheating on me with a cis, with a much older cis man who I knew, and so I mm-hmm. felt really like um, and yet there was this narrative that I couldn't be trusted that I would leave for yeah. a man right and and so actually it was my bi identity which my partner knew about that put mm. me particularly at risk as well as those yeah. other aspects of my identity mm. um, so but to go back to the question sorry I kind of got lost in my own no, narrative a little bit interesting, Definitely. Yeah. But it's almost like the questions is almost like it's it's saying it's almost like flipped and that to be in a queer community but identify as lesbian mm-hmm. that's where you're actually getting a lot of stigma Absolutely. For this particular person, but actually, I think it probably does happen a fair bit. And I think times have really changed too. And what I noticed, and what I notice is that sometimes it's like a pendulum swinging, right? When there's been a lot of harm and cultural and social trauma on one hand, then the pendulum can swing to the other hand, right? And so there's been so much um, pain in kind of queer community in some ways uh, by bi folks that then the pendulum can swing the other way, and it's like, oh, everybody should identify 
identify as bi or queer in a certain way and kind of gay and lesbian is very binary yeah which is fascinating because then bi people get told that same bi is very binary yes. and like i've been asked like why don't you identify as pansexual mm-hmm. so yes fast forward a few years i like you know i uh, in my late 20s uh fell in love with a cis man that i'm still with one of my long-term partners and co-parent and um yeah and that did kind of made my whole world crumble mm-hmm. in that moment but what was helpful was also finding by community yeah. and so finding by community eventually finding my own trans non-binary identity so and I think the labels are tricky yeah like I've gone through so many labels right mm-hmm. and even when I first came out I was like oh I guess I need to be a trans man yeah because I don't feel like androgynous enough to pull off this gender queer thing right Um, and non-binary wasn't a thing yet Mm -hmm. Um, and then when non-binary terminology at least it wasn't a thing that I'd come across (laughs) I mean it was a thing but it wasn't a thing that was uh, visible enough for me to access that's really been in the last five years or so yeah Mm -hmm. and so you know we I think we all go through our journeys around Mm -hmm. labels and my my feeling my hypothesis is that what we're all trying to do is find a sense of connection and belonging Mm -hmm. so where do we belong and also some sense of boundaries right how do we keep ourselves safe yes so in some way I wanted to keep myself safe from the biphobia of lesbian community mm-hmm. in kind of a small provincial town it sounds like the listener is trying to keep themselves safe from kind of uh, unwanted attention by cis men and yeah and we know that kind of the patriarchy often makes uh, femme presenting people into objects and yes. I've certainly been at the receiving end of a lot of unwanted attention by cis men when I was younger and femme presenting and then I went through the very interesting process of losing a whole bunch of erotic capital mm-hmm. when I transitioned and presented as more masculine almost overnight yeah. um, or getting a different kind of fetishizing and exoticizing mm-hmm. yes. um, as a non-binary trans-masculine person by people of all genders mm-hmm. so I guess what I'm trying to say is that I mean my experience labels trying to adopt a label just because it would make me safe didn't yes. work Mm. What has made me feel safer is to be really clear about who I am and having really clear boundaries. Mm. So if I say I'm bi, it doesn't mean I'm interested in a specific group of people, for example. Mm. Um, If I say um, that I'm ethically non-monogamous and I'm polyamorous, it doesn't mean that I'm open to dating anybody, right? And so it sounds like um, there's this weird interaction where the listener wants to claim their own label. I think there's nothing wrong with people calling themselves gay or lesbian or bisexual or pansexual mm-hmm. or, you know, th- there are so many identities and just identifying as gay or lesbian does not need to be trans-exclusionary. I wonder if that's mm-hmm. one of... I mean, yeah. I don't know if that's what the listener was asking, but I wonder if there was a little bit of that in there. Again, without reading out the whole question, yeah. I got the sense in the question when we were chatting about it before that there is an element of stigma in the queer community about people giving themselves a binary sounding label um, mm. and so maybe that is to do with that it might be exclude it might um, that she might be seen to be excluding um, some genders and like non-binary genders mm. um, or transmasculine genders um, but also I maybe I was also getting the impression that it's kind of like that there is that the uh, maybe there is a new kind of queer hegemony happening in some communities mm, where yeah. it's kind of like unless un- unless you're aspiring to be super queer then you know you're not really you're kind of not 
down for the struggle in a way. Oh, there oh. is there's so many queerer than that, right? You know, so oh many queer hierarchies, and like, well, both both my partners don't look like, yeah. like androgynous or something, yeah. and that they both get you know that real sense of like we're not queer enough because we don't. Oh, pull off the queer kind of dominant queer narrative, yeah, exactly. Which is fascinating to me because, mm. and yeah, I totally get that because I remember even. Um, you know, moving to a completely different country. I, li- I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, um, in what's currently known actually as Minnesota and the U.S. and Dakota and Anishinaabeland. And um, what really struck me, you know, I was in this choir for months and months, and then um, the partner that I mentioned came with our kid to a concert, and literally one of, and this was a queer choir, mm-hmm. and one of the people turned around to me and said, I thought you were queer. Mm-hmm. Because they're also allies in the choir, which... A, misread my gender, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and B, meant that they had expectations of what my partners would look like because yeah. Um, yeah. I was queer. So in some way, there's this weird paradox where some queer folks feel like the, the queer umbrella is so much broader, so much more inclusive, so much less binary, but then you turn up with the person who looks the wrong way, yeah. and they're like, oh, that's not queer the way I was thinking about queer. Yeah. So. I think it's a bit like, maybe this is fresh in my mind because somebody said it at a conference yesterday. It's a bit like when people say, I don't have a moral judgment about this. but And I was yeah. like, hang on a minute. We all have moral judgments yeah. and I'm okay with knowing yours. So I think what would be more useful in community is say, hey, I, so you're using the label lesbian. I just want to clarify whether mm. that means you're like, I'm assuming that that means you only date women or feminine identified people. Mm. And then somebody can say yes that's where I'm at or mm. this is I'm in a different place I mean personally like I use the word bi or bi queer sometimes um, for various reasons right labels also have like political power yeah mm. um, and so I think with the level of kind of biphobia and bi erasure I really like using the bi label yeah, and then too. being really clear about where I'm at mm. but you know when I started um, dating the partner I mentioned I used to say for like about a year that I was actually a dyke who was dating a man because I was very attached to my dyke identity mm. I'd really worked for it I appeared mm. queer um, I went for a lot of rejection I didn't go home to my family of origin for a year because mm. of conflicts with coming out um, I was very visibly queer targeted by people on the street for being visibly queer and there was power in this kind of dyke identity for mm. me yeah. um, and I got a lot of flack for people saying can't you just say you're a nice lesbian rather than a dyke mm. mm-hmm. you know from some of my older friends and I was like no because I want that power of being a dyke but then yeah I was dating this dating the cis dude um and so I think it is that desire of like how can I be visible um and then yes when I moved uh, having this invisibility and also the suspicion Mm -hmm. I wonder if there were people in queer community who are looking at me thinking are you an accidental queer right where you really a cis straight woman was with this dude and now you're queer by accident because you're not separating during mm. your transition. Yeah. Rather than knowing that I have a queer history that predates that relationship. Yes. So I went through this really weird process of like coming out as bi, going into the closet as a lesbian for a little bit, uh, you know, for a few years, and then coming out as bi again and having all this big chunk of kind of erasure of my identity Mm. and a lot of people assuming I was straight and then coming out as kind of trans non-binary and then Mm. a whole bunch of 
new people in my life going are you really queer or are you accidentally queer because of your gender mm-hmm. you know and like kind of just going across the whole lgbtq spectrum one of my friends and i teased mm-hmm. that we are the lesbian bi, bi gay yeah. trans queer <laughs> spectrum because we've been everywhere you know and, and i've had relationship with people of all genders pretty much mm-hmm. um so i think you know to go back to the question the listener can call themselves whatever they want um, but they're going to get pushed back probably no matter what and to me it's like I would ask the listener what does the label lesbian mean to you are you claiming like a whole history or movement a whole identity are you in dialogue within, within lesbian community for example around trans issues I don't I don't think there's a way of being good or bad ally. I also don't mm. think we get to call ourselves ally. Like, I, I yeah. would like to think that uh, I'm an ally to, like, my friends of color, but it's not really my job yeah. to call myself that. My job is really to, like, show up, be present, and understand what it means to do the work of social justice um, so that ultimately uh, we can end oppression for mm. all of us. Mm. Um, but I understand kind of the backlash um, that they're experiencing and wanting to have something certain, right? Yeah. And I guess the answer I'm giving is that there cannot be any certainty. I really encourage them to choose the label that best fits for themselves um, and kind of go with that, knowing that there will, there will be criticism. Yeah. Uh, people are pretty ready to criticize who we are. And the last piece, I think, of that question was whether it was okay to exclude dating cis men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think it's okay. Um, Like, you know, I never set out uh, to have uh, a cis, white, straightish, heteroflexible, however, I don't even know how he defines himself anymore, queerish (laughs) um, British man. But there you go. Uh, Sometimes (laughs) love is love. And at the same time, you know, um, so that's kind of how that played out. I don't... I, I think this is a tricky one, right? Because then people are say, would use this this to say, well, then it's okay to say that I never date trans women, right? That I'm a lesbian, I don't date trans women, right? Yeah. Which is if you so. Can say I don't just date it, cis men. Maybe it's okay to say I don't maybe. date trans women. Yeah. And I think that's really different. I think yeah. there is a history of power and privilege and oppression yeah. that yeah. cannot like be denied, right? And I think I wonder if what the listener is saying when she's saying, I'm assuming she pronounced, but when they're saying, sorry. Mm that uh, they don't want to date cis men is that they are not interested in the objectification, they're not interested in the heteronormative yeah. norms that they might be subject to in those relationships. And and I think that some of those normative ways of being, though, can surface in relationship with people of all genders. Mm-hmm. I've had very normative same-gender relationships when I identify as a lesbian. And, uh, and I think there are people of all genders who can have radically different relationships in terms of yeah. they're not conforming to this kind of oppressive norms, but it is more challenging with cis guys. I mean, yeah. I think the other thing that she was talking about being in, in uh, the, this queer community where there are, are cis guys, and I think the, the power piece is an important one to, mm. to look at here, is that if she's feeling objectified and you know, the cis men are taking up an awful lot of space in that space which is um, you know often the case and I think from the question I was getting a sense that that's that's what's happening then it's also exploring about what looking at the power dynamics going on in that particular queer community yeah. that, that she or they were talking about because that stuff exists and even in like oh, yeah. queer communities cis guys still have way more power than they probably 
well, way more power than we might assume. Mm-hmm. Um, even if there are fewer cis guys around than any other gender, absolutely, they often still have the most power because whatever community you're in can't escape the broader culture. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, and then there's the other thing that if somebody's femme presenting, and I definitely had like a good chunk of my life into like my 30s of being fairly femme presenting and I'm still coming across as feminine in lots of ways mm. is that you're going to get a lot more harassment and often yeah. what I've noticed that it's even even in queer community there is a horrible internalized misogyny where it's almost like this what you're bringing on for yourself or presenting in a certain way and there might not be enough protection of our own yeah. right, in some ways but in fact that is what yeah. um, what they say in the question is they go on to say they get a lot of assumptions in queer community about gender and about what they would be like because they're femme so clearly in a way yes. by excluding cis men they're not completely escaping it mm-hmm. and I think also there's that piece about in uh, you know in personal relationships it does need to be really mindful because if you say I'm lesbian um, I don't date cis men but if you then say well maybe I will date trans men the danger mm. is that's kind of implying that trans men aren't really men exactly yeah, yeah. And, that, and certainly if you are in then a relationship with a trans man but you're holding on to that lesbian identity that does something to their identity oh, as well absolutely yeah. I mean our identities mm. are both independent and relational is that paradox right, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. nothing is purely binary mm-hmm. of course like when I used to say I was a dyke dating a man it was my prerogative to hold on to my identity <clears throat> but then I also have to be mindful okay what is happening to the relationship and the yeah. impact that has in, in the long term and also what is my relationship to broader community how much of that was coming from my own internalized biphobia yeah a lot of it yeah you know and i'm not saying the listener is bi like i they can be whoever they want in the world but yes Mm. if they're gonna date non-binary and um transmasculine people what does it mean to say you're a lesbian who's dating transmasculine mm-hmm. and non-binary people about their genders, right? And, yeah, and, and it's navigate between you. It's navigating that relationship space. Mm-hmm. There's no, no, we're not saying like that's not okay. Oh we're yeah, saying, you know, I know people who who do hold on to Absolutely. that label and people who shift the label when they date someone. So it's like, but you need to, you do need to be mindful that it's a relational thing and it does have an impact as well. There's exactly. probably some community work here in, involved in making sure people mm-hmm. are aware of their, their power here as well. Because yes. you know it's that um, you know cis men are granted a degree of privilege that other genders don't have, mm-hmm. and when that privilege is being abused, even if even if it's being done in ways that where they don't recognise it, that needs to be recognised yeah. and noticed. Absolutely. And so if it's making people, you know, I think there is this sense of people date within communities, and if it's making people think, well, I can't date any, of, I'm not dating any of these guys, and I'm going to. Um, claim the, la- the label of uh, lesbian in order to obviate getting yeah. away from these guys then also there is a question there for the community mm. that we need mm. to, to look into okay well how how can we create this community where people feel that they can move towards labels out of um, kind of out of abundance rather than mm-hmm. out of feeling exactly. like I'm, I'm, I'm left with nothing else Exactly. Oh, I love that because mm. it sounds like is this label coming from a sense of scarcity and pr- and and self-preservation and survival yeah. or is this label coming from we have a I don't want any labels yeah. necessarily to die out like I have mm-hmm. like there's nothing wrong with like with, there is nothing wrong with the gay or lesbian identity but is it coming from the sense of abundance is one label amongst many and and sometimes you know I have even said like I'm like gay men are a big chunk of my community yeah right yeah. and it's like gay 
community is super important to me, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it has been really important to me over the years. And I have no interest in seeing like certain label or certain community die out for some sort of like yeah. uniformity, like false uniformity of a queer soup because we do have different identities and we do have different attractions, you know. The reason why I don't call myself pansexual is because I'm attracted to one or more genders and masculine people of all genders. And mm. pansexual for me doesn't quite fit, but it fits for other people. And I'm really ex- yeah. excited the label exists. So it's like, can we can we have that abandons? And if there is a problem with with certain um, cis guys kind of taking up more space um, and not making people feel safe then I think that is a community issue yeah. that needs to be kind of looked at in, mm. uh, in, in some detail, probably. It brings, brings us back to consent, really. It's like mm-hmm. if everyone was behaving more consensually, we wouldn't have to be making these sweeping. Like, you know, it's, it's just it's a really sad thing that oh, yeah. people feel like, you know, it's so like dating apps is like people feel like they need to use identity terms or I'm looking for these mm-hmm. terms that just get rid of cis men because that is the majority of people are having these awful experiences yeah. with. And if really people sad. add pure like gendered expectations because yeah. the, the, there's also this thing where presenting as more masculine has put me in some interesting situation where I feel there are those gendered expectations for me to like be butch or be masculine in certain ways and mm. and there have been times when I dated femme folks who expected me to perform masculine in a certain way even though I and mm. very clearly and explicitly said, I don't, this is not the kind of masculinity I perform. Yeah. I understand that for a lot of people it's hot to have that polar kind of butch fan yeah. dynamic. I love it and it's not something I can offer. No. So, like, if you're looking for that, don't yeah. look at me just because I have like pants and a yeah. shirt. Mm. I can attest to this. Like, if there's a dead bird in the house that Kat has brought in, <laughs> Alex is not your person. I felt, I'm your person. I felt I dealt with it beautifully, <laughs> but yes, I, I did pick it up with a little piece of Kleenex and flung it far, far away in the garden, which I thought made me the butchest person in the world. And I probably looked like a princess who just didn't have anybody around to do it. So, yes, I'm princess in the relationship I can be with other princesses as long as they can be co-princesses but if they expect me to be yeah. prince charming I'm not going to be that yeah, I mean this goes back to this goes to this um, thing about gender scales right and, yeah. and yes. that whole idea of femininity and masculinity and there being certain terms mm-hmm. that are certain character traits are associated with mas- with being mask and certain ones that are associated with being fen yeah. which is clearly bollocks because yeah. we are every day doing, doing different kinds of we're sometimes being more active sometimes being exactly. more passive sometimes being more um, dominant sometimes being more submissive sometimes being more caring yes. sometimes yeah. being careful it's like we're all doing this on a, on a daily basis mm. and mm. so that kind of basic this identity label means that you're going to do this or this yeah. way that you're presenting means that you're going to do this is a question for this community to really what they need is somebody to come in and deliver a bloody workshop with them at their you know, yeah. their events and we're all that, available to do that that's right <laughs> that's <laughs> great. get Max, John and Justin to come and do a workshop for your community I think we found your answer there listeners. but also I think like something really nice to come out with this would be like if somebody says to you you know if you ask somebody what they identify as and they say lesbian or bisexual or gay or pansexual or any word yes. could the next question be what does that mean to you rather than that's not queer enough absolutely you know? well, it's like you know what does it mean to you 
Well, I love that. I mean, because curiously, listen to the answer and don't just like judge on the person for whatever label they use because they get to choose. And if they don't have any label, they get to choose that too. And if you judge on the person, just say, I'm judging you. Like, and that's, <laughs> I mean, and no, but I mean, yeah. I'm honest, like be like really explicit, but then also say like, why? Yeah. Like, and, and do it on more information rather than assumption because yeah. otherwise you're judging the assumption, right? Yeah. So if you ask somebody, what does that mean to you? Yeah. And somebody gives you an answer that you generally object to, mm. You can say like, mm-hmm. okay, like I, that is really offensive to me. Mm-hmm. For example, you know, if somebody said to me, I identify as a lesbian, bad on day, any trans women, yeah. I say, well, I find that really offensive. And yes. this is why, because yeah. trans women are women. And, um, but that, I think it's different. And even like I use yeah. the label princess and then I just suddenly thought that is wrong. Cause like princess Leia is really freaking kick-ass and yeah. <laughs> then becomes a general. And that's not me. I'm not going to be like hanging you know, I have fear of heights. Like, so I'm a very specific kind of princess. Yeah. I'm like old school Disney, not new school Disney. Like, I will shoot from my own hand. I'm not that kind of princess. Uh, like in Brave. So, um, you know, words, they're tricky people. So tricky. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, and that's what we, we, we should call ourselves the unpacking podcast, shouldn't yes. we? Yes. Let's, let's unpack that. that. <laughs> let's unpack that. I think we unpacked that very well. I think we did. Yes. I, think that's, I hope that was useful uh, to, every, to all of our listeners, um, as well as the listener who sent in the question. At this point, shall we like plug something else? Should we do another? Like, this is like in you know very professional podcasts. Mm. They kind of split it up into sections. Ooh, and it's like, uh, yeah. oh, and this oh, is where they? we hear from our sponsor. Oh, but you know, we, yeah. could, we could like plug a thing, couldn't we? Yeah, we could like sponsor um, each other. But well, I would just, <laughs> I would like to plug just how many amazing resources you have, Justin. Oh, because oh, yes. I was like Justin, right? I was talking about oh, this. That I was not. I was not okay. <laughs> That's really not consensual. <laughs> okay, that's okay. That's not how I meant it. I mean, but that I'm would have to first. be negotiated. Yeah. That would be to that would have to be negotiated off the air, maybe yeah. off the podcast. But what I was thinking about, uh, which I'm not thinking about that anymore now. But what I was thinking about was um, Saturday. I went to the conference for sex and really the college of sex and relationship therapists here in um in london and one of the topics that came out was um young people and uh, the availability of online porn and i was thinking about your really great resource planet porn which i've used with some clients because people didn't know about it so i was talking to people about how many amazing resources are, are on your website so maybe you could talk about your website right now and where people can get those amazing resources from which are also very reasonably priced listeners oh, i'm uh, i'm uh, i was not expecting this but thank you very much for this opportunity yes i've got teaching resources for people to use to run workshops with that are available at bistraining.com uh including planet porn but i've also got the new consent teaching pack uh teaching pack about relationships uh uh like a condom teaching pack and a contraception like a safer sex card game called safer sex aces which is like top trumps nice Nice. um so uh, yeah i've got those uh resources available for instant download now (laughs) (laughs) yeah for money you know not a lot of money they're very reasonably priced i mean mean it it's good for me but yeah i try to um yeah i try to make them reasonably priced because people are having to print them out themselves and it's Mm -hmm. an easier and more effective way of getting them uh, getting them across but yeah thank you very much yeah they're really good resources so there you go yes 
Normally, podcasts get sponsored by razors or something at this point, yeah. or like uh, apps. Or well, we were uh, sponsored by bishtraining.com. Okay, yeah. fine. Yeah. Brought to you by bishtraining.com, <laughs> where you can find useful and reasonably priced resources for all your sexual education needs. Oh yes, across so the good. lifespan, <laughs> across the lifespan, not just for adults but also for young people. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, we got uh, two more questions. Yeah. We may decide to divide this into two podcasts. Oh, I think we could do one, one big one. I don't know, I talked a lot. I'm yes, sorry, people. Okay. Let me keep these ones just a little bit shorter. But okay. the first one sorry. was two questions in one, so that was all good. Um, yeah, so we had a question about how to maintain relationships um, for somebody who said they, they identify as someone with Asperger's. Um, mm. And they said, you know, this comes for them with some things like hypersensitivity, mm. compulsivity for some behaviors, finding it tough to figure out um, conversations in real time sometimes. Um, and they wondered if we had any suggestions about how to maintain relationships when that kind of stuff's going on. Yes, and you kindly saved this question for me. And, and this is another really interesting area where I was like, I never set out to be an expert, but I guess what happened is that I did have um, neurodivergent people in my life, including people who are on the autism spectrum. Mm-hmm. And then I started to get a lot of therapy clients <laughs> who are on the autism spectrum mm-hmm. because apparently I'm doing something that works um, uh-huh. for them. So I want to be really clear that I am not on the spectrum. I'm neurotypical in different ways in terms of my mental health issues. Yeah. Um, and kind of being increasingly open about that but I definitely have different challenges in my understanding the folks who are on the autism spectrum mm-hmm. um, but kind of going back to the question in my experience I, I yes it makes sense that the listener would ask kind of how do I negotiate all those things when literally the way that culture works uh, yeah. in terms of ableism um, it's not really supportive probably of the ways that kind of um, my brain, my work. Um, and I think um, one of the ba- the main things for me is kind of, uh, it's okay to go slow and take space. Yeah. So it's okay mm-hmm. to say to somebody, um, I might need a little bit more time to think about this or to kind of step back a little bit. Um, and, one, and sometimes that's hard because people, we're used in dominant culture to this immediacy, right? We can download resources, we can stream yeah. uh, episodes whenever we want to, whether it's a podcast or a TV show. Uh, we can instantly buy something and have it delivered to our house. And so we've got so used to immediacy that if anybody needs a little space, it can be kind of seen as suspect or can be seen as rejection. Um, And so, of course, one thing that I would guess the listener is struggling with is kind of the ableism that Mm -hmm. might encounter when trying to have a relationship. There are also other challenges, right, um, around... Uh, how do you kind of tune into yourself and have a false sense of your own boundaries when there is so much input coming at you both from your, from your environment and within yourself mm. and I know that some of the work I do with my clients is really around some somatic interventions because uh-huh. um, sometimes one of the things that can be challenging is that um, there's actually an hypothesis that counter to the stereotypes mm. that a lot of people on the spectrum you know are perceived I think sometimes in dominant culture as not being very feeling of being quite detached from feelings and all of that mm. um, my experience is that they're actually overly empathetic sometimes mm. overly attuned uh, to what everybody yeah. else around them mm. is thinking and so sometimes it can also be quite hard to distinguish between what are 
what are they picking up that's from the environment what's coming from within and it's like a whole bunch being like inundated in my understanding mm-hmm. again because that's not necessarily my experience but being inundated by so much sensory input that you can't even distinguish and so part of the somatic interventions are also to kind of learn kind of how to um, tune into your body have a felt sense of yes no maybe mm-hmm. having a felt sense of when um there's maybe um, some activation going on and the need to take space. And that can be really hard because one of the coping mechanism for a lot of folks on the spectrum has been to shut down a lot of that because it's just too much, Mm -hmm. especially if you're trying to like interact with the world um, in a way that you're expected to interact with the world, which is often not very friendly (laughs) for a lot of neurodivergent folks, right? Um, And so there is this kind of weird thing going on where there might be quite a bit of kind of, not to get too technical around nervous system, but quite a bit of dorsal vagal shut down. Mm -hmm. So kind of keeping stuff a little bit down to be able to kind of interact and function in the world in certain ways. And then actually needing for that to, it's like the brakes, right? To lift a little bit so that can be a little bit of... um, attention to what's going on internally and so that can be quite tricky so what I would say to the listener is um, to really only be in relationships where um, their consent is a, is valued mm-hmm. and where it's okay to slow down it's okay to move back where people are not making assumptions that maybe just because they're not reacting in the way they're expected to they're not having any feelings or they don't care um, and to have really honest conversations with people who are potential yeah. uh, partners of any kind about what their needs are. And if they don't know what their needs are, to really find um, either an educator or a therapist or a coach who's really competent, mm-hmm. both in terms of negotiating relationship and also understanding of kind of uh, what does it mean to be neurodivergent so that they can do some work around Uh, knowing what it feels like for them to give enthusiastic consent or what it feels like for them to have a boundary. And often this work is very uh, concrete and literal in terms of somatic intervention. So that can be a real um, concrete and literal work that goes on. For example, I worked with a client who wasn't sure they understood the difference between um, having muscles that are tense or relaxed. And so part of what we did was like when you breathe in, like tense everything mm. in your body, almost like you're lifting off mm. the chair. And then when you breathe out, let everything go mm. and kind of did that a few times so that and and what do you notice? What are the differences? Mm. Right. Mm. Kind of jump up and down. And what do you notice mm. uh, when you've been jumping up and down? If you're able to do that for like a minute mm. and then what do you notice happens when you stop doing that mm. uh, for a little while so that people can start to have a sense of how does it feel when their heart rate goes up or even yeah. like taking their pulse or have, or using yeah. a Fitbit mm. so that they can understand what's happening when their heart rate goes up, what is, what's happening when it comes down. Mm. Um, basically kind of a better understanding of their own nervous system so that then can have a better understanding of their activations, their boundaries and mm. be able to re- negotiate relationships from a place where they can be in a better relationship with themselves mm. first yeah. and then they're able to have better relationships mm. with other people. And that's really challenging to do it in a world that's super ableist mm. and that expects people to function in a certain way 
And if there are people um, in the life of this listener or any listeners mm. who are neurodivergent who are not respectful, who do expect them to function just like mm. everybody else, whatever that means, but yeah. right, yeah. B- which basically implies they're expecting them to function like non neurodivergent folks. Um, it's okay to challenge that. It's okay to say that's yeah. not okay. That's ableist, and mm. and if they're willing to learn that, there are resources out there about what's it like um, to be in relationship with neurodivergent people, and they can educate themselves. Mm. And it's not really always the job of folks around the spectrum to function or act as if um, what's expect like kind of what's expected in dominant culture. Yeah. It's okay mm. for people with like major- like who are not. Uh, neurodivergent to learn about neurodivergence and and adjust their expectations Mm. rather than always expect um, folks who are neurodivergent, neurotypical or folks with disabilities. I don't want to make assumptions about how the listener might identify, but rather than always expect the kind of the adaptation to go in the other direction, right? To make things easier for for majority folks. We have the assumption that people would all should always be trying to aspire to the what's been constructed as the norm. The norm, yeah. Yeah. Trying to be Mm -hmm. more like that. But actually it's about embracing diversity, which I like the term neurodiverse for that. Mm -hmm. And it strikes me there's so much from this that's useful for just all relationships, which is that sense of like people are in different places with how much trauma they've been through, people mm-hmm. in different places on neurodiversity, people in places different places on introversion, extroversion, or if you want to use yeah. those kind of words. And it's like it should never be about one person's way of doing things is right. Yeah. Like say doing conflict or doing sex or whatever is right and the other person's is inferior and they should kind of come to that you know, it's like, okay, this is how you like to do it, this is how I like to do it how can we navigate that that's that's best for both of us absolutely and it's okay to ask for your needs to be respected so if you're in an environment where maybe there is a lot of sensory stimulation going on it's okay to say can we go somewhere else to talk yeah if you really need to talk to somebody or it's okay to like withdraw you know from the situation and say i'm going to take a little bit of time for myself because there are things that can be and it's okay you know in terms of physicality which I don't know if it was part of the question or not if part of the issue is how to handle um, physical contact when there might be also other sensory issues Mm. partially is knowing what works and what doesn't work Mm. and and knowing that you're with a partner that's always gonna um, be ready to have ongoing and renegotiating consent at any point. Like that felt good, but now it doesn't feel good anymore. Yeah. And I, or this will never feel good to me. And if this is something you want, yes. I'm not the person to meet that Someone need. should never feel they have to have touch because mm-hmm. that's the normal thing to do in this exactly. context. They have to have a conversation right now because that's what the other person wants to do. Yeah, it's like it should always be a negotiation, a consent negotiation. And that's Absolutely. the thing. That's the. I mean, that comes back to what we always talk about: that the the is being present and being consensual. Yeah. And that's the third handshake that we always talk about, which is just noticing all the way through the handshake how the handshake is going and what's mm. noticing the beginning, the middle, and the end, and oh. how it's feeling in that moment of connection and the moment of disconnection and how climbing the other person's hand is and how hard it is on mm. a scale of one to ten and how you adjust the furnace. Donald Trump, are you listening? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I'll tell you right now, he's not. He's no. not listening. He's not. Um, I mean, I wish he was. Yeah. <laughs> but that, you know, if we were all treating people in that way of being slow and paying attention to what's going on and also being able to do that then actually we wouldn't really have be having to give too much advice to people who no. are mm. who refer to themselves as being Asperger's like because we'd all be able to 
meet with people where they are yeah mm-hmm. and to be able to work with them where they are which is why our zines might come in handy here as mm. well the uh, make your own sex oh make your own sex manual sex manual make your own relationship music oh i yeah. love those zines Thanks. yes so just being able to kind of be quite to go in to think about sex and relationships in more granular detail yeah. in the way that we encourage people to do and think about okay what works for me here what doesn't work for me here mm-hmm. what are my red flags with this Sometimes, you know, how do we do your arguments? What kind of miscommunication yeah. things do we need to Alex is right, a big piece of that mm-hmm. is about, you know, being okay with yourself as well, being okay, yeah. you know, instead of thinking, oh, I'm, you know, neurodivergent and that means there's something wrong with me and I ought to kind of mm-hmm. compensate for it. Or we were talking a lot about trauma last week, yeah. you know, just because you, ha- uh, you know, have trauma in your past and you get triggered, you know, it's really easy to think of that as being a bad thing that mm-hmm. shouldn't happen rather mm-hmm. than being like, okay, this is part of me and here's how it, how, here's how it works for me, you know, and, and explaining that in a relationship. Yeah. yeah. And that's not easy. Like, I, you know, I think for a long time I had a lot of shame and I, had to fe- mm-hmm. I felt like I have to heal enough that I'm a good enough person yeah. to function at all times in this wonderful ways where I'm never triggered. And that's, that's actually not how it works. I yeah. think for me a lot of the healing process has been like, it's okay, terrible things have happened to me and terrible things happen to people yeah. that kind of impacts the way our nervous system functions especially yeah. if they happen early on um, but then I think part of the healing process is not of course I don't have to be shaped by those things forever because neuroplasticity we can to some degree um, support our neural pathways to do something different but the idea is then that I'm not a healed and better human being. Yeah. I still get really triggered sometimes. It's just that I feel I have a little, a few more options. And also, I just I, I feel a little more agency in setting boundaries. Yeah. I think before I, w- I would let people like say things to me. Or I would internalize things. I would um, let people cross boundaries more easily than I do now. And mm. similarly, having a chronic health condition, I still have those moments of shame where I'm like, I should do more. I should write more. I should be able to walk right now I shouldn't have to stop and like being pain or I'm, I'm feeling embarrassed because I need to ask somebody to actually get up from their mm. seat because it's a priority seat and yeah. so I need to sit down if, and um, I, I do have those moments where I feel a lot of shame and I think for me what's been really helpful has been being really immersed in writing by disability activists yeah. there's a wonderful disability justice movement and again I really don't want to make assumption I know a lot of people on the spectrum might not identify as being neurodivergent or as disabled but there is some amazing writing and there's like sex educators who are neurodivergent mm. and on the autism spectrum who would be even like yeah. better people than mm. I am honestly to answer this question and so really like seeking out those resources seeking out those voices yeah. of kind of neurodivergent folks and I think having those models I mean it really occurs to me just how much I got from you last week you know t- totally separate to the writing was just seeing how you relate to that to, to the trauma and triggering kind of piece of like you know really like it's okay this is me this mm-hmm. is what happens to me you know being yeah. a bit like yeah this happens to me and I'm in it right now oh this happened to me last night and now I'm feeling a bit better about it mm-hmm. you know it, and like I don't think I got to that place where I could just be like, oh, this is a thing that happens to me and just like tell people that. Yeah. And um, instead, I'm trying really hard to avoid it happening, which makes it much more likely to happen. And then I'm feeling really shamed when it does happen. And oh, it just it's like literally the first time it's landed with me that I could just be like, this is a thing that happens. Here's how it looks. Here's yeah. what I need when it's happening. You know, it's going to happen sometime. I'm not going to try and avoid it happening. Instead, it's yeah. just like, okay, like, whoa, like, thank you for that. Because that was huge, you know? You're, you're so welcome. And yeah. 
yeah. and I think that's partially because part of the healing process for me has been to realize that most shame is not useful. Yeah. Some some social shame, like I would like uh, people are like racist, white supremacists to be ashamed yes. of their views actually. <laughs> yes. And then I'm hoping that they can heal and move through shame towards a view that allows them to be human beings that can relate to other mm -hmm. human beings in a respectful way. So it's actually really tricky, right? Because it's mm -hmm. like some level of social shame is what allows us to kind of be in relationship with one another to a certain degree. But when that shame is directed only in the direction of folks who are marginalized, mm -hmm. um, I think that's one where it's starting to have a problem, right? There's, there's a majority that kind of um, where we internalize that if we don't function mm -hmm. in a way according to the norm there should be some shame right yes. mm -hmm. um, and that shame is actually not helpful because it kind of perpetuates mm -hmm. systems of oppression kind of within ourselves Absolutely. like in our body yeah, as well as yeah. all around us right and but it takes a lot of strength which I think it's why I take a lot of strength from the collective mm -hmm. of the disability justice movement to say hey this shame is not okay yeah. it's okay for me to have this history it's okay for me to have this body it's okay for my brain to work the way it does yeah. and, and actually I have something really fucking incredible to offer mm -hmm. like disability activists are, are just amazing yes um, you know and so and, and not to do the also the superhero disability yeah, yeah, person yeah, yeah. either because <laughs> right that's other extreme we can go to oh my god like against the odds right yeah, no I'm not buying into that bullshit either but it's like what is the we all have a contribution we're all essential mm. and and there is a reason why we all work in different ways is because humanity is really diverse in lots yeah. of ways including how our brain works mm. and yet we try to put ourselves into these tiny boxes and this is how we do relationships and this doesn't have how to be able to do a relationship we were talking about Mr. Tickle at the beginning because yeah. a Mr. Tickle mag and how non-consensual Mr. Tickle is and I think sometimes the way Domina we think about relationship in dominant culture is very non-consensual. Yeah. So I wonder if that's what the listener is also struggling about with mm -hmm. sensory stuff. Like, I feel like I should yes. behave this way and I don't want to. Absolutely. Well, also yeah. the dominant culture tells us that to treat ourselves as objects as well, right? To mm, completely yes. disregard our, our own body and our yes. feelings and, and literally, as you were describing earlier, you know, our, our pulse, our... Mm -hmm. breathing and um, and any pain that we're in and to kind of just to kind of just get through Push it through. and soldier on and when we treat ourselves as objects we treat everyone else around us like objects yes mm -hmm. so um, that's uh, one thing that really struck me from I don't know whether it was episode three or four of your podcast gender mm. stories with your guest I've forgotten Arika Aguilar <laughs> really really great she was talking about how she um, has a uh, 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 an app on her phone that yes. rings an alarm every 30, 30 minutes to remind her to stretch yep. mm. uh, and to remind her not to sit in a stupid position like I am right now <laughs> <laughs> and like that we'll like we spend you know hours of our day sitting in uncomfortable positions putting ourselves mm. in unnecessary pain and soreness oh gosh, because we're yeah. just told like I'll just ignore that mm -hmm, you know yeah. um, as if we're like you know guards on duty outside right? of and that's a really good point because actually that's a point I wanted to make and then I lost it in, in my head because I'm, sometimes I don't track very well because of the way my brain works with the fibromyalgia um, is the self-consent yeah. self-consent yeah. can be tricky sometimes if, but self-consent to be able to have self-consent we need to know ourselves yeah. right yeah. and so sometimes kind of that slowing down that checking in 
um, you know, sometimes ask my clients, could you make yourself like just 1% a little more comfortable, a little more present? Because we're not going to come into presence from like, like boom, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like all at once, because that would be another shock and, and very non-consensual to our nervous system. Mm-hmm. But, you know, having those moments of like, can I pause and notice how I'm sitting? Is this actually comfortable? Yeah. Maybe it's not comfortable. Can I yeah. like take a break? Like the slowing down, I mean, which is probably one of the reasons why we have the slow down pages in the gender book and then yeah. in our new book. It's so countercultural. Yeah. In a in a culture that wants us to look at our bodies as objects and and like kind machines. of production yeah, like yeah, a exactly. machine. It, you yeah. know, it's capitalism also. I guess it is, I'm yeah. anti-capitalist. Sorry. Yeah. No, now no, it's on there. No, it is. No, it absolutely yeah. is. Yeah. It's the um, mm. it's the let's all carry on being productive. Yeah. Units. It's about not commodifying our own bodies. The, there's actually the body's not an apology, the website, yes. um, mm-hmm. and um, uh, the person who uh, started The Body's Not an Apology also has a great book on uh, uh, called The Body's Not an Apology on Radical Self Love, Sonia Renee Taylor, I think. Yeah. And uh, I would really recommend those resources if people want to start kind of looking at um, ableism, amongst many yeah. other things. Uh, and there's a great article somewhere about not treating our bodies as uh, as commodities, basically, yes. mm-hmm. as a mean of production. Yeah. 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 Even when we unpack quite a lot of this other stuff around sex, gender relationships, it's amazing how we can still fall into those traps oh, that are yeah. very deeply rooted. Because they're rooted in our bodies, right? All the time. Yeah. I push yeah. myself all the time beyond yeah. what I'm supposed to be doing. And this is my work, right? I'm, I'm a freaking yeah. somatic experiencing practitioner. Yeah. And I have to tell myself, my clients laugh when I'm like... I'm going to slow myself down for a minute, right? I don't always just slow my clients down. I also have to slow myself down sometimes and notice what's going on. Um, you know, we've we, we got to do the work, I hope, uh, yeah. to, to show up for other people and support them in doing their work. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, shall we move on to the final uh, one? I don't know. Do we need to go there? I feel like this is quite good, but I'm just all for slowing down. Well, we don't have to do it. I think, I think no, that feels like we covered so much... Was like, a lot. Oh, I don't get to talk about parenting. Well, you can if you want. Do you want to? Shall we go to that last question? Shall we do it? I, I was like already. Like I was, oh, yes, my yes, body yes, was yes, all yes, primed for another question. Going. Okay, so we had a question from a pediatrician. Fascinating. Um, and um, uh, it was about drawing family trees, which is why I thought of you because you're a systemic yes. therapist mm-hmm. and you do genograms, which is a family tree. Absolutely. Um, and this person was working with, uh, I think it might be might broaden out the question to working with any diversity and yeah. how you draw family trees, but they were talking particularly about same-sex parents mm-hmm. and whether it's okay to ask same-sex parents who's the biological parent mm-hmm. and I guess how you would draw that on the Trump family tree, but you might want to talk about gender diversity on a family tree. Yeah. I and the question is like, if either of them were biological parents. Yeah, they were going to yeah. ask, yeah. If, yeah. if one of you are, yeah. That's a, that's a good point. Well, I'm, I'm assuming that as a pediatrician, they won't have to draw like a complicated genogram like family yes. therapists do. <laughs> Although I'm really excited um, because the genogram uh, technology, actually, if there are family therapists listen, listening, has been updated quite a lot from when I trained. And then there are now symbols for like to indicate if people are trans or non-binary. Like there, there are a lot. There's yeah. a whole symbology associated with genograms I invite you to go check it out yes. Google Tell is your friend what a genogram is it's basically a family tree uh, okay right, right it's basically a family tree right. it's a fancy word for yeah. for mapping people's relationships that family uh, okay. therapists use and the risk right. in the past was that they were based on normative assumptions
sections. Yes. So you only, it was like a square for a guy and a circle for a woman. They were pretty but, binary yeah. to begin with, but, but they yeah. got broadened out. So, mm-hmm. um, but I'm assuming what the pediatrician needs is to look at things like genetic heritage yeah. and mm-hmm. risk of illness, which I, it's totally understandable. Um, I have been asked the question of like, um, whether I was the biological parent of my child or mm. who's the biological parent. I mean, it's usually assumed to be me instead of doing the six foot seven and, and looking very decisively as a dude. So people usually look at me going, are, are you the biological? And then there is this pause where people have suddenly forgotten the word parent, yes. which is very common in the English language. And they really want to say mom, but they can't. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think partially is like, normalizing right uh, mm-hmm. I mean already if the pediatrician is listening to podcasts they're obviously awesome because they're listening to the <laughs> Mac John and Justin podcast um, maybe they're just here for the sex maybe yeah, they're the just here bits. for the sex but you know <laughs> maybe they're just here for the plugging <laughs> oh no I have to keep that in there oh no, no. that's a shame sorry about that um, so, so but I would say you know it's okay to say um you know, however you ask it, you can ask who's the biological parent or you can ask, like, how did this child come into your life? Mm-hmm. But nice. I think if you really need to know what the biological parent is, it's okay to ask. So yeah. how did this child come into your life? It's this very euphemistic way of keeping it very open, right? Yeah. So that if biological parent is not present, they don't have to uh, go into a, a long history. I would say also as the children, depending on the age of the child, to um, I would invite health providers to have some sensitivity about choices the families might have made about what to disclose to the child at what age. Yes. Yeah. So if they're seeing children who are you know kind of three years old and up, I would say maybe um, think about asking some of those questions away from children's years. Yeah. Just in case um, that hasn't been negotiated with the, you know that. Yeah. I don't know what is the story the family might have told the child about that came to be, and that might change during different ages of mm. development, right? So to have some sensitivity around that, not just language, but yeah. also what the child may or may not know. It seems to me as well, yeah. like, um, and then this is wider across health providers, mm-hmm. that it's useful to explain to people what, why you need to know yeah. something first. So, it's, you know, yep. I think this comes exactly. into, like, trans healthcare, so, like, if somebody yeah. could, might say, you know, well, were you were you born a man or a woman or whatever? You know, yeah. and it'd be quite, you know. Instead, if they'd said, okay, so what we need to know is we need to know about your internal anatomy exactly. for this reason. Yeah, can you tell us about your internal anatomy? Or we need to know your endocrine levels for this reason um, because we don't know what you know. Yeah. Can you tell me about what your? That would be much better for me, and Absolutely. I guess in this case as well. You know, it's saying okay, what we need to know is about genetic history. We need to know the risk exactly. of various conditions. So can you tell me a bit about the genetic history of this child? Exactly. Would be like way better than who's the biological parent, like as if it's just for some form. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I totally agree. And I think that the thing that came to mind is also the consent, right? Yeah. So information, informed consent, right? We, mm. Health providers are all about informed consent. And so what would be like to say, I need to have some information about the the genetic heritage of the child. Um, so is this a good time to ask you about it? Is it okay yeah. to ask you about this in mm. front of your child? Is this the right time, right? So that there is some negotiating, like the handshake, yeah. Yeah. you know, so that there is some negotiating. And I know that health providers don't always have all the time in the world, but it's important yeah. to advocate to have this time. And then exactly ask questions like, this is why I need to ask, and I would love to know the genetic history of this child. And, yeah. and then that's where you find out more about 
about uh, people's families in a way that feels kind of respectful of people's boundaries uh-huh. um, and and also like really you know it's important to think about the language but I love that you really talked about um, MJ when you were talking I was thinking about even if health providers sometimes get the language wrong yeah it feels really good when they're even tra- even attempting to be respectful which is yes. terrible right I should it would be great if we could like be entitled to respect by healthcare providers. <laughs> so, um, and explaining why, like explaining the reasoning. Like I used to do HIV research, and I had to ask people like which bits go into where. Yes. Um, which is not super trans friendly always, right? Yeah. Um, but if you give a reason and and also start decoupling certain. Um, aspects of our physicality from gender exactly that's really helpful right so yeah. it is different asking somebody what's the genetic history of this child than yeah. who's the biological parent right yeah, that's assuming I, that there's one present in front of you that's what i appreciated with my gp like we had this whole conversation about how irritating is you need to be marked as male or female on the records in the nhs at the moment mm-hmm. and so it had this really useful conversation about let's just like note down different bodily and you know I've got this anatomy so therefore I'm going to need this regular test for example exactly this level of circulating this hormone therefore I'm going to need this regular test and it's like it'd be much better if it could be broken down in terms of a body like that rather than summed up in a M or an F a good example of this as well as sexual health clinics yeah really similar thing and Mm -hmm. sexual health clinics at the moment are overwhelmed because they have had so many of their staff cut and there are it's very difficult to get appointments Mm -hmm. and uh, local authorities have been cutting back on sexual health services, mm-hmm, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm, so they're really yeah. overstretched. But when health services are overstretched like that, they often just take these tremendous shortcuts, which are really depersonalizing. Mm-hmm. So there's always been this, this history of, okay, are you a man or are you a woman? Are you having sex yeah. with or are you having sex with women? Yeah. yeah. Rather than, okay, I need to ask you about your genitals because of this. Yeah. I need to ask you what you've been doing with your genitals with another person because of this, because of the risk of yes. particular things. Yeah. And really trying to understand the biography of that person is just doesn't happen. And not make assumptions that perpetuate harmful stereotypes, yeah, which interestingly exactly. brings us full circle back to the first question. Because yeah. I remember one of my early experiences of going to um, gum clinics, sexual health clinics here yeah. in the UK. And the minute that I said that I wasn't having sex with bi men, you, I mean, if if alarms had gone off in the sexual health <laughs> yes. clinic, yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. like they, they, they might as well have. And, and several times I got this terrible reaction, um, you know, from healthcare providers that was incredibly judgmental. Yeah. They assumed that because I was having sex with bi men, kind of I was a higher risk of HIV or, S, uh, or you know, STIs infections. And, um, and, and instead of asking me what I was doing and whether my behaviors were within the confines of safer sex or not. There was an assumption which perpetuates a harmful myth that bi men are vectors of disease, which is actually really, it's a terrible myth to perpetuate. Mm. And so exactly, it's that if people could make fewer assumptions and be more consensual, I guess this sums up (laughs) all the themes, right, of this question. Be consensual, stop making assumptions, stay with your feelings. Exactly, boom. Like, it would be so much better. I mean, there really are core values, right? Like, how much different the world would be? Instead, like, just ask some questions, right? Oh, what, you know, and ask some questions of everybody because, you know, like, people are engaging in all range of behaviors regardless of their gender identities, you know, and labels that they use, which is like how we come back 
to the beginning, right? So there is no perfect, there is no perfect label. There yeah. is no perfect way of being in a relationship. There is no perfect way of asking a question. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is definitely a relational way. Like I yes. love your summary, right? What was it? Like be present, be, present, be consensual, don't make assumptions, stay with your feelings. I love it. Be present, be consensual, <laughs> don't make assumptions, stay with your feelings. And it's also like, you know, if you make a mistake, that's okay. Like, yeah. Because you might find a way of doing things as a pediatrician or a label as a queer person or a way of doing relationship as a neurodivergent person that is perfect for 98% of the people you meet. And then, boom, yes. that doesn't work anymore. That's okay. Yeah. Then, then you, you listen and go, oh, okay, that didn't work for you for that reason. Thank you for sharing that with me. Mm-hmm. And that's information that you may or may not want to integrate into the way you do things. And actually also that breaks down the hierarchies as well, particularly if you're working with a mm-hmm. practitioner. You know, yeah. if you've fucked up and you've learned something from your client, then uh, you can work more collaboratively about what, how best to move forward. And that yeah. feel better for the client, better for the practitioner. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Don't deliberately fuck up. But, yeah. You know, if you do yeah. accidentally. Oh, those can be great moments yeah. when somebody's willing to acknowledge it and uh, learn from the situation. I love I've my, certainly yeah. been in that situation myself. Yeah. I love my healthcare provider. She figured out that I'd written a book about gender and she was like, Can I have a copy? Because I know I do terribly at this. And I was like, Yes, you do. And, <laughs> yeah, I, will, I will bring you not just one copy, I'll bring you two. One is for you personally, <laughs> and the other one, because it's an integrative health clinic, is there's a little library, is for the integrative health clinic. Because nice. I go to my provider because of their specialty in chronic health issues not because they're a gender specialist but I still want my gender to be respected and I bet that's the truth for other people so and I think I put something about um, integrative gender health is integrative health Nice. Um, you know, you as a dedication. Write, uh, because you fuck up about this all the time. Oh, I yeah. might. I mean, I might have in that. No, I didn't think I wrote that. It was just like I, I just really appreciated that. Uh, yeah. You know, she wanted to learn, and she knew that she wasn't doing this well. And you yeah. know, and hopefully that she can do this better. But yes, and that was the how to understand your gender: a practical guide for exploring <laughs> who you are. Authored by myself and Meg John Barker and published by Jessica Kingsley. <laughs> I'm getting That's really good at this plug. sponsorship yeah, right. thing. What we need to do is record some clips of yeah. you plugging so I'm all our stuff. Yeah. Are you calling me a plugging expert? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I wish you could see Justin right now. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Now now we have to put a content warning on this, right? Yeah. Oh really? Yeah, well probably. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so um what a wonderful podcast and uh, I think that all kind of really came together. Uh, sorry, what what an arrogant thing to say. What a wonderful podcast. Well, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was I enjoyed fun. it. I um, really enjoyed it. I thought it was really fun. Yeah, we enjoyed it. What an enjoyable podcast. You can definitely say that because everyone involved so far enjoyed it. We don't know about the it, listeners. But nothing is binary. It could be wonderful and enjoyable and, yeah. be okay, and terrible Something for some people and it's Absolutely. okay. We're sorry if you're somebody who was not who was offended by all the plugging jokes. Yeah. Yes. For I, example. I'm, I am sorry about that, but we did enjoy them enormously. Yeah, they were great. There's got to be something for us in this. There's always going to be know. something for us. Right, yeah. you've got to put in a thing for us. Um, so, <laughs> uh, thank you uh, so much, Alex, for coming. Uh, uh, I love working with you. The The last post- podcast we did when it was like that meeting of the metal metamorphers yeah that was great i really enjoyed that one and um somebody on our twitters was saying that that was our their favorite episode so uh, we hope that um 
uh, everyone really likes this one and it's uh, wonderful to see you again yeah well thank you for having me and and listeners if you think like like we yes we all just really like each other this much yes and I've only yeah. met Justin twice yeah mm-hmm. that's just how awesome we all roll a lot. So, really nice. so yeah so go and check out Alex's podcast yeah. Gender, Gender Stories, Stories so. available through your regular if you you can find it through your any of your favorite platforms favorite apart from yeah. Spotify if you want it on Spotify write to Spotify because I keep applying and they have a yeah you can uh, ask them for Meg, John and Justin the same yeah, time ask them, ask them to accept Meg, John yeah. and Justin yeah. and Gender Stories in their yeah. podcast list cool <laughs> Um, and also you're on the Twitters, aren't you? And, uh, I am um, on the Twitters. On the Gender Stories. At Gender Stories. Yeah. And on the Instagram, which my 14-year-old wow. has taken over as my social media manager. Amazing. Because apparently I really suck at Instagram. Right. At Gender Stories, on Twitter, nice. on Instagram, and on Facebook. And please keep listening to the Mac, John, and Justin podcast, because it's fucking fantastic. <laughs> I even swore on your podcast. Is that allowed? Yes. Keep listening to the Mac, John, and Justin podcast, because it's fantastic. There, I so. gave the safe for work version. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep posting. Yeah. Okay. So let, we are bringing this to a close. So yeah. uh, thank you so much for for having us uh, for having us for coming here. <laughs> oh, I don't know what I'm saying anymore. That's it's fine. all the plug and talk. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And until next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.